1: Family caregivers don't have to be alone in their experiences. You will hear from experts and other caregivers facing the same issues that you may be facing. Now, here is your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley.
2: Welcome to Episode 134 of Family Caregivers Unite. This is Dr. Gordon Atherley, your host. Our topic today is home automation and cybercrime. Cybercrime is harmful things that computer communications are used for, such as child pornography, spreading hate, use of information in ways that harm individuals. An example of harm is an elderly widow who was losing her memory. She was defrauded of a lot of money by a phone caller who claimed to be a relative. This was cybercrime if the fraudster used a computer to find out the woman's age, the state of her mental health or some other information that exposed her vulnerability. I know of this crime because this the woman lived in the condo which I live in. Now, I asked Ontario's Information and Privacy Commission who family caregivers should contact for advice if they're concerned about cybercrime risk for a vulnerable family member. The Commission, I'm sorry to say, declined comment. Now, to discuss home automation and cybercrime, our guests are Alan Major and John Wunderlich. Alan is the founder of Goodrobot.com. He's always been interested in how science, technology and society interact interact to shape our future. And over the last 12 years, he's followed this interest directly in his career as a research analyst and writer. Now he's exploring this frontier hands-on by experimenting with sensors, home automation, robotics and collective intelligence. His current venture uses technology to help elderly people live independently in their homes by sharing information with family and caregivers. He says monitoring the activity within a home, you know, an example he gives is when the fridge was last opened, allows families to know how their loved one is doing or even alert them to unusual patterns. John Wunderlich is an independent information and privacy consultant in Toronto. His background in privacy includes protecting employee data for a Canadian payroll company. Protecting patient data for an Ontario health agency and being a senior policy advisor to the Pri- Privacy Commission of Ontario. His current clients' concerns involve health records in a variety of contexts. He serves as a privacy member of the Ontario Cancer Research Ethics Board, and he continues to write, speak, and teach on privacy-related issues for public and private sector audiences across Canada. And he describes himself as a middle-aged guy with chronic health issues, including type 2 diabetes, who's active in a political party. So welcome to the show, Alan and John. Thanks. Thanks, Gordon. Okay. Now, Alan, first for you. Please tell us a little bit more about your background and your work in home automation.
3: Uh, my background is uh, as a tech researcher and writer I did that uh, for 11 years and uh, during the last year and a half uh, that I worked uh, at that I really focused a lot on you know data and sensors and visualization so you know just based on that list of topics you can tell that I'm a bit of a geek at heart and um, I'm a really big fan of technology transformation so looking at areas of where you know automation and sensors and uh, robotics can really Start to uh, extend and enhance uh, human capability, and what I mean by that is that even the simplest technologies, whether you're talking about something like you know eyeglasses, or whether you're talking about you know something you know more complex like an artificial limb or a, uh, a wheelchair, you know allows us to extend uh, you know our, our our capability and our senses, and you know in the case of home automation, it allows us to even you know kind of be our eyes and ears when we're not around, and so. So I really tried to focus, you know, those interests uh, around that kind of technology on home automation. And so through my startup company, you know, Good Robot is focused on using uh, kind of low-cost home automation to be able to help elderly people uh, live independently. And so the system that uh, we've built, it really does uh, a couple of things. It, it makes homes safer uh, through very simple things like, you know, better lighting that can help to prevent falls. And then as Gordon was saying, it, it helps share information with family caregivers. So it really lets them know how their loved ones are doing, you know, whether there's any kind of patterns or of concern or things that they ought to be alerted about.
2: Right, John. Please tell us more about your background as an information and privacy consultant, and how did you get started in that work?
4: I'm uh, I'm what you might call an accidental privacyist. My uh, my uh, background, professional background, was in IT and operations, where I used to be. Uh, Network administrator and a systems administrator and, uh, uh, at one point, uh, an email administrator, information architect, and the company I was working for, um, I took on privacy as a project because it looked like an interesting uh, technical and, uh, policy issue. And I kind of never looked back as it were. So in the years that I've been doing that, I mean, you covered off some of the, uh, the jobs I've had, but I, I guess I, uh, I like to think of uh, of what I do as the, uh, as, the um, as the as the as the still quiet voice of the uh, of the person whose data uh, we as technologists um, are administering. Because that person's never at the table when decisions were made on how information systems uh, are built. I sometimes use the example of the uh, terribly embarrassing robe that you sometimes have to wear in a hospital uh... that leaves your nether regions exposed and going up to the nurses station and saying to the nurse "Boris uh, the effect of i don't feel like my privacy is being looked after here and her response is don't worry dear we've seen it all before and somehow uh... you're you you don't feel better uh, But it's clearly your problem and not theirs, and uh, I don't want the information systems that I'm responsible for, that my clients are, to be the equivalent of that uh, privacy privacy thoughtless uh, nurse focused on uh, what she knows instead of what you need.
2: Very good. Alan, you've talked about home automation, but can you be a bit more precise in what exactly you mean by it? And... Can you say a little bit more about the benefits to family caregivers who are caring for family members with a whole of a range of health challenges? Alan?
3: Yeah, so probably the best way to describe uh, home automation is to talk about how homes themselves are becoming You know, uh, smarter than they used to be and, and homes have always had a little bit of smarts attached to them. Like, you know, people have got, you know, um, you know, remote controls in their house and, you know, they've got smoke alarms and some people have security systems. And so all of these systems are automated in some way. Um, and so a smart home is really, uh, you know, just more of that. It's a system that, you know, can sense its environment. It can, uh, respond intelligently. To that information, sometimes it will also make decisions and take action. And so, you know, on the very basic level, that really does apply to, you know, a a smoke detector or your thermostat or other kinds of things. But uh, increasingly, a smart home, uh, you know, has a lot more of these kinds of capabilities. It's things that are, you know, built into your light switches. I I recently came across an example of a, a smart light bulb that can actually send signals or receive signals. You know, so there's a lot of things that. You know, your home can do, it can respond by turning on lights, it can, you know, put on background music or adjust your thermostat based on time of day and all of these kinds of things. But these same kind of capabilities, they're, they appeal to gadget freaks. But on the other hand, they can be also very useful for caregiving because they can, uh, at the simplest level, they can actually make your house safer. So you can light your path automatically to the bathroom at night. Um, you could potentially, you know, get an alert, uh, of a stove if it got left unattended or, you know, maybe there's other kinds of adve- adverse events, uh, you know, like let's say you're Uh, your fridge uh, door that got left open that the temperature warmed it up or there's a flood or something like that Uh, and then the other thing that it does is it allows you to share information so you can share these event information that the system is already capturing Uh, you can alert someone if something goes wrong you can monitor for daily routines going out of pattern and there's a lot of other uh, capabilities that you can keep people informed about too
2: Right John, what cybercrime I know I had a shot at defining it, but how do you, as a professional, not in cybercrime, but in privacy, define it? Or what are the risks, the main risks, that you see that should be of concern to family caregivers who are in the kind of situation that Alan's describing, that is, they're using um, home automation as a way of looking after caring for their family members? John?
4: Well, Gordon, um, a simple definition of cybercrime uh... is it's criminal activity uh... using computers and the internet so at that level it's no different than any other uh, criminal activity there's uh... uh... a criminal who's uh... trying to gain benefit for him or herself and they just happen to use the the tools at hand Uh, whether it's a club a knife uh... or a, a computer uh... doesn't doesn't really matter so your recourse there is precautions like you uh... would normally take and uh... In the physical world, and, you're, and uh, look for assistance uh, from the police uh, after the crime has uh, has occurred. Um, that's sort of simplistic, and the main risk uh, for cybercrime should be concerned. I think you identified it for family caregivers: is that their loved ones uh, might be defrauded and or suffer from identity theft. The theft, the fraud, could be as simple as a fake email uh, from a, a granddaughter. Um, uh saying uh grandma i'm in uh i'm in london and uh i I just lost all my money and i don't want to bother my parents can you please wire me 500 pounds so i can get home and uh the fraudsters might have gotten the information that she was in london from her facebook uh, account and looked up grandma some other way uh on the other hand it could be as uh complicated, and I know this happened to a forensic accountant who I spoke to at a, at a, at a, at a conference once, so it's not, it's, it's not a risk just to the uh, unaware or the ill-prepared because she was as prepared and as aware as anyone, but the first that she knew the mortgages that mortgages had been taken out in her name and that houses purchased and then sold was when the uh, financial institutions came to her and asked for $500,000. And the fraudsters had already skipped town with the money from the houses they'd flipped. So these are real crimes uh, involving uh, real money. Uh, There's also medical identity theft, uh, where somebody perhaps from the United States who doesn't have coverage steals uh, somebody's uh, medical uh, credentials or medical identity and he comes up to Canada to uh, take advantage of, uh, of our medical system. And the real risk there, other than the money that that might cost the system, is, for example, if you're allergic to penicillin or your, your loved one is allergic to penicillin, but the person who hijacks their uh, medical identity is not, and if you're using an electronic health record that's shared amongst the uh, caregivers the fact that uh, you are not uh, allergic to penicillin becomes the uh, electronic health record and if you go in on an emergency situation trouble uh, life threatening trouble could uh, ensue
2: and right. finally although John, that, uh, John I'm just going to stop you there because we are on the tyranny of the break, which there we do have go. to take now. But I will uh, give you a chance to catch up uh, when we we go into the next uh, segment. So let's take the break now. This is where we pay the rent. This is Dr. Gordon Adler and my guests are Alan Major and John Wanderlake. You're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America channel. Stay tuned. <laughs>
0: What's happening on the Voice America Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at Voice America TRN.
5: Are you a business innovator or are you just sitting on the sidelines? Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc G at familycaregiversunite.org. Now, back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite. And Alan Major and John Wunderlich. Our topic is home automation and cybercrime. So, now let's talk about what's known about trends in home automation and cybercrime, and links between the two, and how all this might impact family members whom family caregivers are caring for. Now, I'm going to start with Alan, although I did cut uh, John off, but I will give him a chance uh, in a moment. So, Alan, the trends in home automation that are of particular interest to family caregivers, you know, in the caring situation. What are they? What are those trends?
3: Well, there's actually a lot of exciting things happening. Um, You know, we've got new kinds of communication, uh, new types of computing, new kinds of data that we've never had before, and, you know, kind of remote access to the data. But uh, of all of those, I think it's this new computing that's probably the most relevant to our conversation. You know, back in the beginning, we defined cybercrime as sort of any offense involving the computer or the Internet or a computing system. And so, Um, what's very relevant is that what we mean by computer is actually changing. And today, uh, you know, because of the lower cost of technology and uh, advances in them, these things are very, very small and very, very low cost. And so, you know, what we would call a computer is starting to be in our mobile phones. It's in our watches and our fitness devices and even in some cases you could even argue that it's in your payment card. So um, with all of these devices kind of everywhere, you know, uh, on our person, in our homes, uh, it raises all kinds of new security issues and new complexities and with these little kind of computers everywhere, it, it's an important question on how we protect them. And uh, I think there's a few other ones as well, like communication and information sharing. You know, we've made it easy to share information beyond the boundaries of the home, and that's great. You know, when you're away and want to check in uh, on, on, you know, if there's something happening or how a loved one is doing. But on the other hand, you know, because we've got this, you know, remote access, we have to manage, you know, who has access to that information. We, we've also got more kinds of data, uh, data that we've never been able to collect before in some cases or the old data that we're able to track more easily or track it over time to see trends. And so the, the result is that uh, I guess the, our medical data starts to get this much bigger footprint. Uh, and so there's an important question on how do we manage that and control that volume of data. And then the last thing would be mobile access. Uh, we've now got all of these, you know, people talk about data in the cloud that you've, you, know, and you can access it from so many different points now and different devices and mobile phones and tablets. And so with all of these different channels of access, we need to make sure they're all protected. So, you know, not just, you know, our logins and passwords, but what happens if our, our phone, you know, gets stolen, for example? Maybe there's an application that is a gateway to something that's important.
2: Right. Now, John... Back to you, Um, you were about to talk about an additional risk when medical records are allocated, if I understood you right, to the wrong person through cybercrime. Um, So please talk about that and also then fill us in on the trends in cybercrime that we family caregivers, the audience and us should be interested in. John?
4: What I was going to say, in respect of home automation, is, depending on how that automation is uh, done, privacy is very much about a person having control of information about themselves and uh, how the system is set up and who it's shared with under what circumstances may or may not be a crime, but it could easily uh, be a loss of control for the uh, uh, of the person who the family caregiver is trying to uh, protect. It might it might be that the uh, and i'll get into this later uh, that the family caregiver is the one that violates the privacy but I, if i want to talk about trends i think we'll just talk about something that's representative we'll talk about phishing with a ph uh phishing, phishing uh which is uh Trying to, uh, using an email directed to someone, uh, trying to uh, get them to send uh, the criminal money, typically by sending an email that looks like it's from a legitimate organization, usually a financial institution, but contains a link to a fake website that replicates the real one. So, piece of advice number one in this show is never click on a link in an email uh, from a bank, ever. Uh, just don't do it. You can go, go to the web bank's website uh, separately and then look up your account that way. There's something called the Anti-Phishing Working Group, an industry consortium. And uh, if you look at the statistics, for example, in February, they identified 56, uh, over 56,000 56, separate unique phishing sites. Uh, 392 brands, which is to say banks or financial institutions, were targeted in February of March. And here's the really scary number. The average number of infected PCs across the globe stands at 35.51%, which means that over a third of the computers that sit in people's homes and desks at work are infected by some kind of uh, malware. So uh, that's the scary part of the show, finding uh, that this stuff is so pernicious, pernicious and widespread.
2: Right. Alan, let's talk about the ways in which home automation impacts cybercrime vulnerabilities. In other words, it, it latches on to what John was just talking about, um, the question of people having control, but also the question of the way in which that control is abused through the things that John was talking about. Now let's talk about the way in which those things might get into home automation, particularly in regard to young people and adults who are living at home being cared for for Condition that makes them vulnerable. Alan?
3: I think it's kind of like any system that you would use or depend upon. You really uh, kind of want to ensure that you're using it responsibly in order to limit your risks. And so you know, when you drive your car, you know you want to try and follow the rules of the road. And when you use a social network like Facebook, you sort of want to you know, manage how you share your information or how you deal with strangers. And it's the same kind of thing with home automation because how you use it and what kind of information, Information you share and how has a lot to do with, you know, your level of security. So just as an example, you know, uh, you want to treat information differently. Like on my website, uh, you know, I, I've you know, actually publish, you know, whether my fridge gets opened or not, and you can see a chart of that. And that's because it's it's low risk information. No, no one's going to be able to, you know, cause any disruption with that. But on the other hand, I'm not going to publicly allow people to adjust my thermostat or turn on my stove remotely because those are, you know, much more potentially dangerous kinds of things to share. And so, I think it's like every new technology. You know, people embrace it uh, for the the benefits of it, but you got to think about some of the risks as well, because especially when that technology begins to scale, the criminals start to look at, hey, is there potential for this technology? You know, just, you know, there's there's people who know how to use the telephone system for scams. And, you know, the Internet has fostered some new kinds of identity theft. And uh, now moving to these amazing smart devices that are going to be everywhere, you know, for in our homes and watches and everything else, you know, this starts to, again, make the world of security um, a a lot more complicated because there's so many more points of potential intrusion. And just like we didn't know, uh, you know what the internet was going to bring us in terms of new threats, I think there's all kinds of new threats and vulnerabilities that are going to appear in home automation uh, systems as well. Uh, but I guess on the plus side, you know, a- any of this technology that sort of arms criminals can also arm us. Uh, so you know, we are able to protect ourselves from harm. We have more sophisticated you know, home automation systems than we have in the past. Like, I joke that now I can not only know if, you know, somebody, you know, enters my home as an intruder when I'm away, but, boy, they, you know, they might get into my fridge and eat my food or snacks, and I can see that, too, you know? So no, no, very there's, good. there's a, 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 I think, a window of information that can now be shared and, and potentially used to, to help us as well.
2: Good. Now, John, um, <clears throat> this question of cybercrime exploiting home automation... Um, I particularly want to ask you about vulnerabilities, the way this Abercrime reads into vulnerabilities of young people and adults who may not really be, for one reason or another, in a position to uh, exercise the degree of control that's ne- needed. That is to say, they may not understand fully what's going on, or they may be easily misled, or they simply may not understand what, what's reaching them. I know it's a very, it's a it's a difficult one, and there are no uh, there may no be no easy answers. But John, please have a go about that. What what could cybercrime do in those in those situations?
4: Well, if I was watching uh, Alan's fridge that he public, uh, that he publishes on his website, and I saw that it hadn't been opened or closed in two or three days, I'm thinking that's a good time to break into his house because he's probably on vacation. Um, so that's the first, uh, the first instance. Just the presence or lack of activity tells you something that's going on in the home, and that enables you to uh, to make decisions. Now, if that's a private alert uh, to a security company that says we haven't heard any activity from Alan, maybe he's in trouble. That's a good thing, but if it's uh, readily available, it can be put to nefarious use. There's some interesting studies uh, from. Uh, Researchers that are working on smart grid technology, the, uh, the smart meters that are going in in, in, some, uh, in some jurisdictions to enable better control of the power. And these researchers are finding that they can make uh, pretty sophisticated uh, determinations of what's going on in the home just by simple power use uh, reading. So I'm not sure how much of that, this is that gray area between cybercrime and privacy invasion. Uh, how much you can infer from of, of people's habits what they do and can therefore tailor uh your attack or your approach uh if you're trying to defraud them because if we're maintaining uh, a cyber crime it ends up there has to there has to be an actual crime at the at, at the uh, as the end game so there's enough information revealed that the uh The person can craft a phishing email or can create a phone call where it sounds like they know stuff that only people that are familiar with you would know, and you therefore engender the trust that would lead to fraud. It's a separate question, of course, if releasing that much information about an individual is privacy-invasive. And then there's a third question about who's aggregating that data in the back end and what's going on with that information, and what profiles are being built on you, and whether you can become a target of uh, other kinds of uh, transactions. But I think I don't want to overstay my time yet again.
2: No, that's perfectly fair. Just very quickly, though, supposing um, we're dealing with a child, and I'm talking about situations that are actually real. That is, a child is very good sometimes with autism, but also is able to be very good and effective in the way that they use computers. It's two things sometimes go in together. But that child may not be sophisticated enough to recognize that he or she is being exploited. Now, that's where the question of the decision making passes over to the parent in the sense that the parent is there to do the protection now do you see any problems with that the way i've just described it that that idea that the has to be an overseer in these sorts of situations
4: well i think that that that's correct if you're dealing with a person who sees a link on a page and because their condition has to click on it um... that enables uh... Uh, malware distributors to ensure that their malware is installed on that computer. So, if that's the nature of the condition, then yes, you very much have to exercise uh, positive control. Uh, it very much depends uh, upon the nature of the relationship, the nature of the uh, of the uh, of the issue, because uh, privacy. I go back to this: just because the caregiver might know more doesn't mean that they know best for the person that they're caring for Uh, privacy as long as you're capable and that's really the question you're asking i think gordon uh, Mm -hmm. is uh uh, is a matter of uh, being able to make my own stupid mistakes thank you very much Right.
2: Now, I'm going to stop you there only because we've got a break. But we'll pick that up again because that's a fundamental point. So we'll go to the break now. This is Dr. Gordon Erdler. My guests are Alan Major and John you're listening to Family Caregivers Unite on the Voice America Variety Channel.
1: Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com.
5: Are you an entrepreneur that wants to achieve more, not just in it for profit, but to do work you find meaningful that adds more value to more people in more ways? Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Pasilli, radio to thrive by. Streaming live, the leader in internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: You are listening to Family Caregivers Unite with Dr. Gordon Atherley. If you have any questions or comments about our program, please address them by email to doc g at org. Now back to Family Caregivers Unite.
2: Welcome back to our listeners to Family Caregivers Unite, and Alan Major and John Wunderlich. Our topic is home automation and cybercrime. So let's talk about cybercrime that could exploit home automation in the ways that we've been talking about, but from the perspective of family caregivers who are interested in home automation to help care for family members. So, Alan, first for you, please highlight the types of questions relative to cybercrime risk that family caregivers should ask folk like you who are providers of home automation. What are the questions?
3: Well, I think the biggest one is, uh, something that's already been covered actually, and that's how much control do I have over the system and how it's set up, because if you have those kinds of uh, controls, you can kind of focus on the uh, collecting and sharing the kind of information that's going to, you know, maximize the benefits of the system while, you know, sort of reducing the risks. Uh, because in some cases, there's costs of not sharing the information, you know, whether it's, you know, I mean, there's all of these issues where you we wish we had information on, whether it's a fall or a vital sign that could have been shared with our, our doctor. And so, you, you want to be able to kind of share those things. But at the same time, kind of, you know, at the same time, you know, not share information that unnecessarily, you know, uh, you know, puts you at risk for the same reason you would you know, email someone your, your credit card number. So I think, you know, just managing that and managing who has access to it can really go a long way. So you want to make sure that the system kind of has those capabilities built in. Um, and then ask what data protections are in place. And, uh, you know, some of that is really basic, like making sure that when you transmit data, try not to transmit personally identifiable information with it. And, you know, checking, you know, asking questions about well, who can access this data, and under what conditions, and does the data have this life cycle so that I can ensure that you know it's not kept um, you know forever, as in as in the case of you know search engines or some kinds of social networks, for example, and then the last thing would be whether. Uh, the system creates any other potential risks or vulnerabilities like does it you know pierce my firewall when, when, when information is going back and forth could it affect you know more valuable data that's you know sitting on my you know personal acute computer or other kinds of uh, equipment because the last thing you want to do is you know create a gateway to that kind of stuff.
2: Right. John again it's the same question but Questions about privacy security and what I'll call worrying incidents. What are the types of questions that uh, family caregivers should ask and who should they address those questions to?
4: Well, well, the things that Gordon said, and I don't mean to challenge him because uh, make me want to challenge the use of the word smart for all of these systems because if they were smart, They'd be like human beings, and you could have a conversation about what your privacy desires were, and the human being would go away and configure themselves to respect that. So smart systems are actually complicated systems that have a lot of choices where there's a lot of responsibilities. But, so, and some of those responsibilities, I think we've covered what information does the system collect, what's the information used for, what's the information stored, who has access. If Gordon's company, uh, Uh, collects information and keeps it on his servers? Who on his company has access to that information? Does, uh, Does the company share that information even anonymously? How long does the company keep the information? Does the company have a privacy or security officer? How can you contact them? If you change your mind about using the service, can you get your information back? Can you get it deleted? Can I request access to my own data at the service and request correction if there are errors? And so forth, and so on, so if we 're providing a service, most of these questions would be uh, directed to your uh, to your service provider right. that 's sort of the quick uh, quick list of questions
2: perfectly fair now, Alan, I want you to look again at the role for family caregivers in protecting family members. Um, that is to say, it's one thing to ask questions. Um, it's another thing to take responsibility. But as John's pointed out, uh, there may be occasions when taking responsibility is in fact intruding on the decision-making of the individual family member. So please say more about the role you personally see Family caregivers in protecting family uh, caregivers against the, the risks that we've been talking about.
3: Yeah, I think uh, I mean the the really important role is that uh, family caregivers are just in a huge, uh, you know, position of responsibility, you know, they're, they're, they're playing a role in deciding what systems and tools to adopt or how it gets used, and uh, I, I, I would echo uh, John's comments about some of these smart systems are not so smart, and so, you know, you need a human uh, kind of at the steering wheel to kind of make decisions ab- about them and what kind of use is appropriate or how much, you know, you can actually, you know, rely upon these systems, and that's really important, you know, to when it comes to any tool, you know, you want to minimize the risks to the people that you're caring for. And, you know, whether that tool is a grab bar, a pill box, a security system, or a home automation system, you need to use it in a, you know, a smart and informed way. And and so for all these tools, uh, using it, uh, it's important to make sure that it's used correctly. And I think it's also important because of some of the limitations that it's a complement, not a substitute for the kind of care that's being provided. And so, you know, actively managing how they get used is a really important step towards minimizing some of the vulnerabilities. And it's just in a way like, uh, you know, how we're taught from a very early age these safe practices. Like I'm saying, you know, telling my kids, don't open the door for strangers. And, but kids today are exposed uh, to lots of new things that I never was when I was a kid, you know. So now we need to talk about these new issues about, you know, how you have rules about privacy and safety online and what's appropriate to share and how to manage privacy and passwords and phishing. And so uh, the same applies to any of these new technologies like home automation. We need to be really careful about the information we share and who to share it with, what things can be safely controlled outside a home and and what shouldn't. You know, I don't want, you know, the the, the stove or or these kinds of, you know, higher risk devices maybe attached to the network or to the system. So that way I think, You know, using these things and, you know, basic security around passwords and other stuff allows us to focus on uh, using these systems and tools in ways that can actually reduce risk and overall improve our capabilities.
2: John, it's essentially the same question, the role that you see for family caregivers in protecting family members against the things we're talking about. But I'd like you to dwell on the point that sometimes... the family caregiver may be intruding and sometimes they may be protecting. Please say more from your experience in the privacy world, which is considerable. How you see that, what kind of advice you would give and how you would see that role?
4: Well, privacy is, uh, from my point, when we're talking about systems, is um, it's not the privacy of making sure the door is closed when you go to the bathroom. It's about Information privacy, the information about the person. So if the person that you're providing care for that's being provided care, it's a mobility problem. They're a paraplegic in full full control of their senses. I don't think that there's any role at all for the family gi- caregiver in helping them uh, set up or their systems or, or access information or any of that. Because the reason they're being provided care doesn't reduce their capabilities uh, to make those decisions and execute upon themselves in, in, a, in a general sense. And then, and at the other end of the spectrum, of course, if if you're a, a family person uh, dealing with a family member with Alzheimer's in later stages, then you're a substitute decision maker in every sense of the way, and your role is to uh, is to make the decisions that you think are in that person's best interests and I'm increasingly of the mind that just as people now talk about a living will and uh uh that is the the end of life decisions that are involved there uh I think family caregivers have a responsibility uh, when they're dealing with uh, their their family members to have a discussion about their privacy choices when that person is still able to express what those privacy choices are so they can then continue to make decisions that are consistent with who that person was when they were able to make those decisions themselves.
2: I'm going to just make a comment back to you both. We're a little bit, um, we're running into the break, so I'm going to make a comment back to you. And that is, what you are giving a lot of information, both of you, that family caregivers certainly need to consider, I think, I think that's very clear. But then the question comes of whether the information that's available to family caregivers um, is in fact sufficient and explicit enough. And I wonder whether there's more of a role for producing the kind of information that goes out with when you had a prescription filled, the pharmacist will give you uh, a printout of things, you know, the side effects to be watched for, kind of what, when to take it, when not to, things not to mix it with, and that kind of thing. And I'm wondering if there's any role. Just and I, I this is a very big question, but a quick answer. First of all, Anne, do, do you see any role for more and better information for family caregivers in the kind of situations we're talking about? What do you think, very quickly?
3: Oh, I think absolutely there is. Uh, you know, people are, uh, you know, they, they don't know what they don't know in some cases. So, you know, kind of outlining some of the issues that they may not have uh, considered, uh, I think can be very, very helpful. And even the things that they are, some kind of guideline around uh, the information or how it can be used or or other issues, That all of that is very, very valuable.
2: John, do you agree with Alan on that?
4: Mm, not so much. I think oftentimes the providing of, a deluge of information becomes stuff my lawyer made me tell you, so I don't have to take responsibility for choices you make down the road. I <laughs> would uh, rather that the systems were designed to be safe to begin with, from a privacy and security point of view. Um, Perfect.
2: Yeah, perfectly fair. Now, unfortunately, we have, we have to break at that point, but that's, that's something, uh, that's very worth hearing. Uh, the privacy should be designed in now as i say it is time to take the break this is dr gordon Adler and my guests are alan major and john wonderlich you're listening to family Caregivers unite on the voice america variety channel stay tuned
5: be sure to friend us on facebook you can do it right now visit facebook.com forward slash voice america or search for us at keyword voice america come back to your senses imagine a radio show that will help you recover your common sense host leah brenda smith is a health and wellness specialist who will explain techniques designed to help you recover from the stress of your life it's all about how you respond to your thoughts a little bit of self-awareness can go a long way in helping you to relax and enjoy your life Tune in to Come Back to Your Senses Radio, live every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern Time, 1 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you're looking for answers and solutions, you don't have to look to expensive treatments, consultations, and methods. All you have to do is listen to your connections. Every week, the Dr. Melanie Show will teach you how to do just that. Dr. Melanie Barton will share her gifts and talents and teach you to do the same. And in doing so, find the solutions to the issues in your life that you truly need. You'll learn about holistic and practical health in six key areas. Discover the Dr. Melanie Show Thursdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com
1: You are listening to family caregivers unite with dr gordon atherley if you have any questions or comments about our program please address them by email to doc g at family caregivers org. now back to family caregivers unite
2: welcome back to our listeners to family caregivers unite and alan major and john wonderlich our topic is home automation and cybercrime. now ensuring that the benefits of home automation aren't uh, undermined or destroyed by cybercrime is obviously an increasing challenge from all the things you've been saying. So I want to ask you both the priorities you see. Alan, first of all, what are the priorities you see for the home automation industry?
3: Well, one of the things, and to kind of pick up on what we were talking about before the break, is that I, I think it is really important to consider how people will use the system you know, day to day. And so having some kind of guidelines on that uh, appropriate use ensures that they can sort of maximize uh, the benefit of using the tool, but that it also you know, makes sure that it, it really improves the safety and keeps people informed. And so um, you really can't control a lot of ways that people... People use a system you can build in security you can build in um, privacy but it's like your house if you have great locks but you don't sort of lock the door when you leave them uh, you know all of those you know features and capabilities are, are, are useless So I think it is important to have you know so at least a process of education or some some way of keeping people informed as to appropriate usage and especially when it comes to things like phishing or password protection and those kinds of things it certainly can't hurt um, the other thing that I think is is very important, is ease of use. Because one of the challenges around any technology is that, you know, like people find computers or technology confusing sometimes. And and I think online criminals love to take advantage of that confusion. That's how they, you know, they'll pretend they're a bank or they'll pretend that, you know, they're your system administrator. And so if you can simplify a system so that how it works is very, very clear, it can kind of go a long way to reducing that confusion and make the system um, a little bit, safer managed and, uh, you know, people can have better confidence in it.
2: Right. John, I'm going to, because time's a little bit short, I'm going straight to John on this one. What are the priorities you see for governments and their agencies?
4: I'll back into that question. David Rice, in a book called Geekonomics, that's about security, talks about the problems that startups have, which is that they have to have cash flow. Cash flow means that your system has to work soon and be sellable. If you start building security into systems, it delays uh, the start of your cash flow. This is just a general problem for startups. It's almost self-evident because uh, security is not necessarily a functional requirement. So the role of government (coughs) is to even that playing field so that all the startups all have to provide basic, if you will, seat belts in their software. Determining what those seat belts are for what kind of software is going to be a challenge, I grant you. But the role is to make sure that uh, that's built in, even if you're a startup. And then the education and publicity part is the, again, to use a seatbelt analogy, uh, making sure that people are aware that uh, they should be wearing the damn things. Yep.
2: Yeah. Now, let's talk, Alan, please, about the priorities you see for family caregivers.
3: Well, I think uh, for family caregivers, the bottom line is really all about kind of balancing these risks. There's, you know, so many day-to-day risks that caregivers are contending with, you know, all the time. And there's simple ways to make big differences in mitigating those risks. And, you know, some of them are low-tech, you know, removing a loose carpet or installing a grab bar or, you know, even, you know, on automated side, improving lighting to reduce falls. And so I think, you know, home automation technology does offer some potential to reduce some of these kinds of risks and we can really accomplish some great improvements by uh, sharing the right information with the right person at the right time so you know with family members with physicians or others in some cases and so you know if, if that's done right you can not only kind of respond to emergencies but you can actually you know help to prevent them so there's real benefits to correct uh, information flow or improving in the information flow. But with that, I think there's a lot of kind of responsibility and and concern that we need to take some basic steps to make sure that that information flow is secure. So, you know, who it gets shared with and how? Is it necessary? Is it not? You know, do you have a good password? All of these things can really go a long way to allowing you to focus on the benefits of the system uh, just as you would any other kind of tool that can help.
2: Got it. John, your priorities for family caregivers, please. Well, I very much echo what uh, Alan had to say. I mean,
4: the devil here is in the details by, by making sure what do you mean by the right information is in the right person's hands right, uh, at the right time. Uh, if you can uh, do that in, in a way that where the defaults are privacy protective and secure, I think you've got a winner. Um, but we, I'm not sure that we have a corporate or regulatory environment that fits that bill.
2: Quick question to both of you. Um, First of all, Annan, do you think there's enough awareness around of the risks and, for that matter, the benefits of home automation?
3: I think there's not a lot of people um unfortunately are either don't aren't even aware of some of the possibilities of home automation let alone some of the risks and unfortunately much of what they might hear you know would come from advertising so yeah there's there's definitely a lot of uh, information flow that could be improved
2: yeah John what what same question to you what's the level of awareness that you you see
4: well, if companies were as aware of how vulnerable they were to privacy uh, problems, there'd be a lot more people knocking at my door demanding to hire me than there are.
2: <laughs> yes, okay. Well, we may want to charge you for that commercial. But, <laughs> but, but what, you know, what,
4: what I find is that uh, uh, most systems, most of the time, working well um, – are providing a service that people like, and oftentimes the privacy issues um, are an edge case or on the fringes, but the problem is that when you build large systems for large numbers of people, uh, what only affects a small percentage of the people, it, 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 it was only 1% of your customer base, is still 100% of a problem for thousands of people, and we still haven't figured out how to square that circle.
2: And the population's getting bigger and the people, as I understand it from what you've been saying, and the people who are wanting to abuse, um, home automation to indulge in cybercrime and those kinds of things also seem to be getting more adept at using the technology. Is that right? John, first of all.
4: Uh, well, absolutely. Um, it's an arms race. And on the one side, we're trying to build systems that are convenient and easy to use and provide a range of services that also, unfortunately in too many cases, provide security and privacy as an afterthought to the design process, whereas the opposition, their first and foremost goal in designing their systems, and some of them are very well funded, is to penetrate those systems to commit crimes and gain access to information. It's... Uh, It's, uh, what's, what's the word for it? It's asynchronous combat, but the advantages are with the attacker.
2: Yeah. And if I could just say, ask you this, um, Alan, and I'm afraid this does have to be the last question. Um, this matter of everybody, so to speak, getting smarter, that is the people like you who are designing the systems and the people who are out there wanting to abuse the systems, um, john has been talking about a sort of constant struggle and the people, other people I've spoken to say the same thing. But they stress the point that you've always got to be trying to be a step ahead of the bad guys and the bad guys are always trying to be a step ahead of you. Now, very quickly, yes or no, is that a fair comment to make to you?
3: Uh, I agree, I think it's an, a bit of an arms race, and you do have to be very, very careful to uh, try and keep a step of the head uh, of the game I mean even you know some of the most sophisticated uh corporations uh you know in this continent have had all kinds of vulnerabilities, so yeah, I think it's a, a big issue and something to keep on top of
2: right now unfortunately, we have to close. Uh, that I want to say thank you first to our listeners and I also want to say thank you to Alan and John because what you've been saying I think is profoundly important that is to say we all have to be uh, alert We there's no need to panic but there's certainly a need to take account so for all the work you're both doing every success and I hope that you'll work together in one of these ways to bring forward the the sort of common ground that you both have Now, to our audience, I'd like to say we'd be pleased to hear from you, um, on your views of roles of family caregivers. And if you'd like to send me comments, please do so. Or if you'd like, if you'd like to be a guest on Family Caregivers Unite, uh, please get in touch with me as well, because we're always interested. Now, in our next episode, we'll talk about laws for family caregivers' rights and compensation after years of family caregiving. So please join us, same time, same spot on the Internet. Talk to you then.
1: Thank you again for joining us this week for Family Caregivers Unite with your host, Dr. Gordon Atherley. Please tune in again next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. And until then, we hope our program will help make the coming week easier and more hopeful. And I do appreciate you being right.